Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Phil Tiger. Slacker Hello Slackers and Happy New Year to you all. I hope you're all good. I hope you survived um, the holiday season in whatever way you did. I'm sure a lot of you didn't get home to see your your family or your friends the same way that you normally would do every year. Um, And that is all in the rear view mirror now. Like a lot of people love getting me to say the word mirror. Um, But yeah, honestly, like uh, as much as we can all do to, to get together and keep each other sane, and um i'm not gonna say in these weird times in these strange times every time somebody says in these strange times it makes me cringe but i mean yeah things are shit and there's another lockdown on which means uh, i'm gonna do my best and the only thing that i can do i can't um go out and um help in in hospitals because i don't have any <laughs> inclination of what to do but what i can do is provide some sort of distraction in in terms of the content that i make and if you're listening to this for the first time and you enjoy music you enjoy like the little nitty-gritty bits that go behind it the music industry side of things there is over 60 of these podcasts um with various different artists you'll love some of them you'll not be arsed about some of them you'll be loving um other ones um for you to go back and, and check out um on wherever it is you get your podcast on spotify or apple or um Deezer, Google, or or whatever, Castbox, um, and I have also have a new show which is really like designed for um, anybody who's feeling a little bit anxious, who's feeling a little bit panicky, or who just needs a little stress uh, <clears throat> relief. Um, it's called Chill the Beats. I launched it on the twentieth of December. We're about six or seven episodes in. Um, it's only on Spotify, so if you type in Chill Da Beats, D-A-C-H-I-L-L-D-A-B-E-A-T-S, all one word into Spotify, you will get two hours of musical medicine that will drop every single Sunday and every single Wednesday. And that is my my effort, anyway, um, to the, the, the social 
um putting back into the society pot um during during this lockdown and yeah i'm gonna record lots more podcasts like i i went absolutely buck mental during the first lockdown and i recorded so many that i'm only just running out of them now i haven't recorded any fresh ones in about a month or two um and i need to get back on the wagon and it will be um booking now so if anybody there's any artists out there that you really want to hear you can let me know um at philly taggart on twitter and instagram and or just send a smoke signal or fax fax my office fax my secretary demo and tell him who you want okay um this week's um guest is an absolute icon of music now i'm not talking about somebody who is an icon of playing music or even singing in a band or really being in a band but one of those characters that's able to make shit happen who's able to find great independent music and and uh, and nourish it and 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 just encourage it very much uh, in the same way that somebody like you know tony wilson would have or malcolm mclaren has done in in the past this man stands out um all by himself and you know i has very different personality traits to to both of the people that i've i've mentioned his name is alan mcgee um the the founder of creation records um he's had his hand in the careers of Jesus and the Mary Chain, the Happy Mondays, um, Primal Scream. He's the man who founded Oasis. Um, currently, he's releasing loads of new bands and artists on his new record label, as well as managing a band called The Clockworks, who are really cool as well, who you should all go and check out if you're looking for some modern rock and roll. Um, and yeah, we spent an hour chatting to each other and having a wonderful time. And this is how it sounded in three, two. One. right here we are slacker podcast um i'm never ever gonna do any more slacker podcasts face to face now that i've realized i don't have to leave me my kitchen <laughs> and today we've got uh, alan mcgee who's on the other side of uh of this uh zoom chat how, how you doing alan you well no i'm good so talking about the demo we could have really gone for pretty much anything we could have went for some of the bands that <laughs> you're drinking iron brew and you're scottish that's like me drinking a pint of guinness while we're doing this <laughs> I, don't, I don't drink anymore i'm sober you know it is, it is my it is my it is my uh, it's my guilty pleasure it's your, your vice and <laughs> iron brew um so we could have picked anything we could have picked uh like one of your bands, like that you played in, one of the bands from from Creation. Why why did we settle on on this demo of Primal Scream and I think this it's song? An story because I tell you, but it was it was that was recorded just when I started to label up in '83, and I was school. I was a school friend of Bob's. Maybe not his best mate at school, but by the time punk had happened, we were like we were double tight and. Um, so it was natural when I started a label that I was going to put Bob's record out. And he'd started this, he'd been in different bands like The Wake and he drummed for Altered Images and when Titch would get, you know, would be too much of a brat and they'd just go, Bobby, you, you do the, the shows. Um, so he'd been around a little bit. He was only, he was pretty young, Bob. It was in 82, Bob would be about 20. But he'd been, 
he'd been in the, he'd been doing in the punk things, doing stuff for three or four years, and him and Beatty, the guy that started Primal Scream, it was Jim and Bobby that started it. They somehow I don't know why they went for this, but uh, they got Jim Beatty's girlfriend Phil to sing as, as if she, I don't know if she was ever going to be in the band, but this was the beginning of Primal Scream, and they recorded it with Will Smarties, and. It shows you the strength of me and Bob's relationship, really. Because I think we ended up spending, and this is like 1983, so it's quite a lot of money. We spent about 500 quid on, I think, was it one track or two tracks? It might only have been one track. But we, and uh, I thought it was okay. As you know, you know, I, th- I still think it'll listen to it the other day. I still think it's actually pretty good. But Bob went, McGee, please don't put that out. And I never put it out. And then eventually, Primal Scream, about a year and a half later, at the end of 84, um, put out, was it 84? I think it was maybe the 85, early 85, I put out Primal Scream, All Fall Down. And that was the first release. But that demo was meant to be the first Primal Scream single, and it just never happened. (laughs) I'll tell you what, I'm going to blast it in now so everybody can hear a little bit of it, of what, what Primal Scream started like. Yeah, yeah. Here we go. That was Primal Scream and The Orchard. And, and yeah, you think that like Primal Scream fans or people who've got like a, a fascination with, with their music would know a little bit more about it, but that really is a rarity, isn't it? Nobody knows about that. I'm amazed it's even on the internet because I don't have a copy of it. And then somebody, that's just, that's just appeared over the last few years. Now, 
I think Bobby is not keen on it, but the, the truth is, it's the history, whether you're keen on it or not. That was meant to be the first primal scream single. Never got out. Bobby, though, this is how good the guy Gillespie actually is, right? So when he joined the Mary Chain and he got a bit of cash, this is, uh, he joined the Mary Chain uh, late 84, I think it was, and uh, he got a bit of cash in 85, and he gave me the 500 quid back so that it never come out. Do you know what I mean? You know? <laughs> There's like hush well, money for the first single. Do you know what I mean? But you listen to it, right? It's it's good. Like it, it's it's merit. Yeah. Like it's 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 good enough to come out. Most bands would cut cut off their left arm for a for a single like that. It's the only primal scream written by Bob, except he's not singing it. So you know, and I think at a certain point he must have said, "I can do it. I can do that." You know, what I mean? was confidence an issue that he had? Terrible at one point. Yeah, up to. Really, I mean, I'm not even taking the mic here. Up until about, up until about the mid '90s, Bob always had problems with his vocals. When he was doing, uh, when he did the first album, everything was a comp. Phil, every single word was like that song "I Love You." I <laughs> comped love comp, and he was so paranoid about his voice. And then the second album, it wasn't so bad, and then. Screamadelica, it wasn't so bad. And then when he got to the fourth album with Give Out But Don't Give Up, that was bad again with the producer, I uh, can't remember his name. And, uh, you know, Tom O'Dowd, the old dude who did all these great soul records. And uh, again, that was like, he was comping his vocal. And it wasn't until the fifth album, Vanishing Point, I think it's called, uh, that he basically got confident. So that, that, I mean, that's crazy that it took. Yeah, you, want, you wonder where it came from because, like, you think by the fifth record, like, it's not going to come, you know? Like, and then you've got, like, Ian Brown, who's, who feels like he's more confident than anybody, but has barely. Yeah. Like, he can probably hit every other note when he's singing. <laughs> I think I've, I've always had experience like that with singers. I mean, Mary Chain, Jim Reed used to always in the beginning say to me, but Alan, I'm not a singer. <laughs> You're the biggest singer in the band. You better sing the songs. And uh, that was, you know, that, that, I mean, he was like that, Sean Ryder's like that. There's a lot of people that have went on and had big careers as singers that, are, that don't really, deep down, don't really think that, you know, they think, I think, it was, what's it called? The imposter syndrome. They don't really think yeah. they should be doing that. They've, all three of these guys have got that. That's what happens when you sign the underdog, though. When you sign the underdog, the, the confidence is low because, because of that. Like, I mean, even, like... I think Liam Gallagher's a brilliant singer in a punk style, but I'm never going to invite him to my wedding to sing, sing Ness and Dorma. Do you know what I mean? I thought that he was an incredible singer. So that's never, that was never, he, he, the day one of me meeting him, he thought he was great. And he is a great singer. So it's like, well, he's one of the, one of the best ones I've ever done. Hmm. I've, I've ever worked with. But, um, what about Kevin Shields? No, he doesn't think himself as a singer, but, but he's not hung up about his vocals. Do you know what I mean? He's, he, I think he's, Vocals is an instrument, Phil. That's what I think he does. You know, what I mean, because mm. he, he layers it so that if you, and you can hear that with Loveless, and you know, as in anything that he's using the vocal as more like a sound. It's a phonetic thing. You know what I mean? It's interesting though, because like, surely, surely in in a, a game where the song is key, and you know, singers are probably one of the most important members of the band. That all the artists that you've worked with have done fairly fairly well out of it by, by even not being great singers. So it shows you how much attitude has to play, right? Yeah, well, that was a time in music 
post-punk that, I mean, the 80s get really, you know, maligned and people slag it off, but it was a great time. I mean, Bunnymen, Teardrop, Primals, Mary Chain, Mondays, New Order. I mean, all these bands came out of the 80s, do you know what I mean? Mm. It was incredible, do you know what I mean? Um, so I, I want to go back to sort of a, a little bit more about yourself. Let's talk, talk about a little bit more about you and and Glasgow growing up a, a, as a kid. I've always got this this idea. Like I mean, I come from a sort of working class background in Northern Ireland, so I feel like you know, even with the name Taggart, like I feel like I've got, got a bit of a connection more with Scotland than I do probably any of the rest of the UK. Um, but I've always had this idea that like Glasgow was almost a little bit like Dublin, like you know, in the sort of mid uh, 20th century where it was full of romance and full of great people but also rough as fuck yeah it was it was i mean i mean glasgow i mean glasgow thought it was belfast basically for you know most of the 70s do you know what i mean you know it was like you know the attitude with the football and the sectarianism do you know what i mean you know and i, I mean i i, I was, i'm protestant i was brought up rangers but he, he, do you know what? We could get a grant for this podcast. I'm Catholic, you're Protestant. <laughs> I, I put, I'm going to put a grant in for some peace money on this podcast. <laughs> I, got, I got to... I, I, I left Scotland when I was 19 and I'd run out of patience with the whole sectarianism thing. Do you know what I mean? Because, mm. yeah. of course, if you live up there, you see a couple of pretty bad things related to religion and you just go, this is not me. Do you know what I mean? You know, it's like, you know, so, so that's one of the reasons I relocate, relocated to England. Was it? It's just I just wasn't having the sectarianism. I hate it. You know what I mean? Were, were you were you sort of like sheltered into your your part? Like I mean, could you walk into Catholic areas? Could, could like could, okay. was, I mean, was I the open? I don't come from the roughest bit of Glasgow. I mean, I come from. I mean, all Glasgow's pretty rough ultimately. But I come from Mount Florida. I mean, it sounds posh, isn't it posh? But um, <laughs> it really does. I want to go there on holidays. I tell you where it is. You've been to it probably if you yeah. know you football. It's Hampden Park. They right, right, right. It's not posh. It's just, you know what I mean? It's like, it's council estate and flats and all that stuff. But it's not, it's not Easter House. It's not Black Hill. Do you know what I mean? It's not mm. like you go down some of these places and, do you know what I mean? If they don't know you, you've got a problem. Do you know what I mean? Did you have to sort of become a little more streetwise when you were like in your early teens, like your yeah, 12, I mean, 13, 14? Phil, we, we, we nearly got, I mean, I was doing this uh, program with them for the BBC about two or three years ago. And we were out at the, um, what, what part were we at? We were, we were, somehow we'd ended up in the Queen's Park. We were walking back to shoot more of this documentary about the primals. And he said to me, do you remember? And I completely forgot it, Phil. And he said to me, do you remember when we were going to get stabbed in the bus? Or slashed, sorry. I was like, I don't remember it. And, and he goes, we'd coming back from Devo McGee and we were at the back of the bus. And there was two drunk Neds. That's what I was like. I don't know if you use that in Ireland, right? Yeah, well, I think we're called Spides in, in Northern Ireland. It's like, uh, well, well, there was two supposed Neds, drunk Neds. I vaguely now remember it. And uh, Bob, I think I, I thought at the time Bobby was taking the piss. And he went, McGee, get off, get off. And supposedly, he told me this two or three years ago, what they got, what these guys, that were get, get, they were going on up to Castlewell, I think. And we were wee guys, punk guys with makeup on and like spiky hair and all that shit. You know, just like looked like, as if we were on the buzzcocks or something like that. It was maybe 78. And uh, so we'd be 17 and uh, there were going to be slashes when the, the inspector were down the stairs and Bob got us off. 
and I'd forgotten about it, Phil, because when he told me <laughs> yeah. about it, I was like, that didn't happen. And he went, it fucking did happen. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that's crazy. Like, so, like, what was, like, obviously, punk was a, a massive movement for you, and, like, in terms of attitude, in terms of, yeah. Um, where where the label and everything would sort of go from there on in. But before that, when you were like a like a kid, like a little one, what was like the the music that was on your house? Was it progressive music? Was it pop music? Was it old well, folk? My music? parents were like musically fucking clueless, man. Right? You know, what I mean, no, like, Tony Orlando knocked three times and all that terrible yeah. stuff that they would like, right? Uh, Tie a yellow ribbon was a big favorite with my mum and dad as well. Do you know what I mean? Terrible mm-hmm. music taste. I think it kind of probably ultimately helped me because I was into the first record I bought was Get It On when I was 10 or yeah, I would be 10 in 71. And um, the second record I bought wasn't cool, mate. It was like, uh, it was Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap by Middle of the Road, right? So it was like, it was it was a fluky, really cool record I bought as the yeah. first one. But the second one was not cool. Because when you're 10, you don't have a clue what cool is. You just, yeah. what, not, a similar one to that. What, what's number one and number two? Yeah, do you know what I mean? Because I got a wee bit of money off of somebody, and I bought a couple of singles. You know, like I think I was very similar. I mean, you'll probably hit me for this, but I think the first single I bought was "Park Life" by Blur, and then the second one I bought was actually uh, "Benga Boys" or something like that. You know, like we're we're going to Ibiza, and I probably would have been about the same age, probably about ten when 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 it came out. I think it's random what you like at that point, but but pretty soon I was into T Rex for about a year, and then I was into Slade. Really, of the whole time I was into Slade, but then Bowie came along, and that was it. That changed it. You know, when I heard Ziggy Stardust, I'd be about eleven, I think, maybe twelve, and that was it. I was I was fanatic for Bowie. You know, when when you say you like Bowie, like at that age, like are you drawn to him because of how good his music is, or because he kind of gives off this like androgynous alien from space vibe? Everything, but I mean, initially it was the music. I mean, they played it in the common room. I think I was in the, the end of first year in the common room. I was about eleven, I think, and uh, the first year common room. And and I heard like you know it's five years, and then it was like Soul Love, Moonish Daydream, and I was like, I was just blown away. And uh, and then of course you know you work out that he's a complete freak, <laughs> and and he's, and he's triggering some mad shit that. You don't know you've got going on inside you. Because I would say, up until I was about 14, I really didn't know what my sexuality was because I loved Bowie so much. Do you know what I mean? And you're not really sexual at that age, but you, but I, when I said it up to 13, 14, I wouldn't really have known. I could never have admitted that in Glasgow at the time. No. I wouldn't have really known what way it was going to go. You know what I mean? Yeah. Have you crossed paths with Bowie over... over... I never met him. I mean, a lot of my pals met him. I, there's a funny story. I think when Jim Reed was um, singing with the Primals around 2002 or three, something like that, and they, they met Bowie in Norway, and Jim Reed was plastered and supposedly walked into the green room. Bobby was talking to Bowie, and Bowie was being nice with Bob and complimentary about the Primals. And Jim went, and right, Bob went, this is Jim Reed for the Mary Chain. And Jim Reed was so pissed, he fell at Bowie's feet in the mud. <laughs> <laughs> and in the dark, and it was like I think that was the Jesus and Mary Chain meeting, meeting, uh, meeting David Bowie. You know, it's weird because like the stories I've heard about people meeting Bowie is that like Bowie or or, or Bowie, Bowie as he's like people in the South England say. That's what we call him. His real name is it's like 
Bowie is how you really. But I think we all we were all grew up. Everybody calls him Bowie, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I just can't say Bowie, Bowie without without putting on some sort of like fake Southern accent. David Bowie. Um, yeah. yeah, apparently when people meet him, he's actually a bit. More, he's a bit more of a lad and like a bit more of like one of the dudes. I know a lot of people that knew him quite well, to be honest. You know, and everybody. I mean, he's a genius, isn't he? You know, just total genius. What was the What was the first band that you played in? Was like was that uh, a school band or? No, 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 no. It was a, it was just through the punk thing. What happened with me was I discovered the punk uh, thing when I was about 15 and I was in a record shop and I saw Johnny, John Lyde and Johnny Rotten having this epileptic fit in a sort of blue bondage suit and I went back and got Gillespie. Went, you got to come and see this guy. And like, I t- showed Bob Lyde and we both basically from there on in. We were, we were probably the first punks in the south, south side of Glasgow, really. It's been the end of 76, and I'd say there was only maybe about six punks in the whole of outside of Glasgow. And then about nine months later, when the fashion had caught up with Scotland, because Scotland never really got into punk to midway through 77, really, you know what I mean? And it happened in London in 76. Uh, and then there was suddenly 2,000 people there to see the clash of the stranglers. And, do you know what I mean? But it, it, was, it, was, it was hardly anybody into it. What what was the reaction with your parents and stuff when you were coming home with uh, like ripped trousers and like safety oh, well, pins in your ears and stuff? Yeah, my dad took it pretty bad because he thought I was gay, which I wasn't. At that point, I'd worked out I wasn't gay and I was just a little mad punk. I just looked as if I was in the buzzcocks, do you know what I mean? It's nice to wind up your parents at that age. That's what you meant to do, isn't it? That's kind of, that's kind of part of it. Um, so like uh, you, you get into like punk and stuff, like did you go and see like the, the Clash and Pistols and stuff like that? Or, like the buzzcocks? They never came to Scotland, never came to Glasgow. And I was young, you know, I mean, I'd be like 16, you know, and they never came, but the clash came. I saw everybody. I'd been going to gigs, Phil, since I'd been about 10. And I saw everybody. I mean, literally, you know, all the glam rock stars, T-Rex, Slade, Bowie, Roxy, Gary Glitter, you know, Lindsay DePaul. Then more sort of Thin Lizzy. I took Bob to see Thin Lizzy. That was his first concert. And then I... and then, you know, the punk thing happened and then it was like, a, that was our thing suddenly, you know what I mean? The, the glam thing always felt as if it was your big brother's thing. But, the, but you know what I mean? It was like the, the punk thing actually felt as if that, that was our thing, you know? When you were looking up at the stage, uh, like, what were you thinking? Like, cause like, I, I, I feel like when I was a teenager and still probably to a certain degree now, when yeah. you, I get inspired very much like by watching people like, yeah. Perform really well, and sometimes like, I, wanted be, I wanted to be in a band, but it's like it was, it was more. I think looking back at it, I saw that as my route out of being the person that uh, it was getting set up for me to be a guy that works in a factory. Do you know what I mean? And uh, I did manage to music got me out of that situation. Do you know what I mean? Did you have uh, any shit jobs? Oh, yeah, I've done it all, man. You know, what I mean? I've worked in building sites and factories making collars, and you know. You know, I'm just, I mean, you name it, I've, I've probably done the job when I was a kid. Yeah. Then London at 19 and then, but I got, it was pretty fast for me because by the time I was like 21, I had a successful club in London. And then by the time I was 22, I'd launched Creation, was managing Mary Chain. So I, I did, I, I did it really fast. I got off the ground. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Like doing that 21, 22. It's... I know, we were going round America, Phil. And Mary Chain had broken America. We were doing about 4,000 people in the big cities and a couple of thousand people in the middle of America. And I was like 23 
Jim was 22, Bob was 22, Douglas was 17. Uh, William was the old guy in the band, he was 26. And we toured America. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was crazy, really. It was so young. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're still at that age where it's acceptable to get shouted at by your mother, right? Yet you're in charge of taking a band around America and looking after their... Their, their future and their finances and all the rest of it. Surely, like, uh, must have been a, a difficult gig managing at 23, or, or were you just sort of, like, so I was loving arrogant it. with it? Like I was loving it. No matter how weird and wonderful it got, because, you know, the reads are quite a handful of people, you know, I, mean, I don't know if you know anything about the band, but difficult at times, you know. And But no matter how difficult as people they could be, it was always better than Glasgow and a building site in Glasgow. So that's why I just thought, Let's just go on with it, you know. Why was it management and not standing on on the stage? Like, what? Why? Why did you get into that? Because twenty two, like, you're still young enough to be able to go and do it. Yeah, I don't think I was. I was very good. I mean, I was all right. I mean, I, I was more like a busker, if you know what I mean. I was busking it really, you know. I mean, I was. But then when I started doing the management thing, and I got, I got, I, mean, I broke the Mary chain, and then, and then I had a good run of bands before. I got you. I never managed Oasis. I signed the records and the publishing. But I wasn't the manager, but. At such a big, long line of—I mean, the eighties into the nineties, about ten years, Phil, I just kept signing bands that broke. Do you know what I mean? And um, you know, I, I suppose at a certain point, you just go, "This is what I'm good at," you know? Yeah. But what, what was the, the the first band then that that did it for you? What was the first release you did? Actually, I suppose more importantly, I suppose it was the Jesus and Mary Chain on Creation, and we put that out, and then that was upside down. That sold fifty thousand copies. And then, and then it just started kind of going like that. And, you know, we signed some really good bands like The Loft, we put out, and, and then it turned into The Weather Prophets. That failed. I signed Primals to a major. That failed. But we learned, and I put them back on creation, signed The House of Love, signed Ride, signed The Valentines, and then it just evolved, you know. There was a guy in um, the, the House of Love 
called Terry Bickers, I think. Who played? Who played? No, get this for Tanya's link, right? Um, he played in a band called Colenso Parade before uh, House of Love, and yeah. I I played in a band called Colenso Parade for ten or fifteen <laughs> years, and we used to get messages on MySpace from the original Colenso Parade talent, so we had to change our name. And eventually, I met the lead singer at a gig in Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> we just laughed it out and i remember like the my the the message in me in myspace going you have to change your name there's only one band from belfast called Clenzo parade and i uh, i remember because i was about 19 i was like fuck off old man no chance for the real one <laughs> yeah i mean yeah i mean like it's, you know there's loads of i mean there was a creation records before before me and i never knew this until the internet came along in the late 90s and it was robert stigwood had a creation records in the 60s do you know what I mean? So it's just, you know, I think everybody, I didn't, I didn't even know that when I was doing it, but, and then when Google came along in the late nineties and then you go, you put in creation records and well, Robert Stigwood had a lot. So I think <laughs> that happens, doesn't it? You know? What, what was like the, the inspiration to, st- to set up a label? Because like back, back in the late seventies, like you had the DIY thing with punk and I think the Buzzcocks did a lot of that. But setting up a record label was a lot more difficult then than it is now, right? Well, I'll tell you why I done it. It was dead simple. It was like we had a successful club. I was like 21, 22 year old, and we were making bill back in the early eighties about seven hundred pound a week cash. And, and is, the, that, is that just from admission fees, or is that from like uh, bar, it, bars? Putting the door with the bands and all that stuff, but we were packing it out, you know. Yeah. We ended up doing two or three shows a week, so we were making about. Back in the day, six, seven hundred pound a week. Most weeks would do that. And initially, me and my pals, Joe Foster and Dick Green, we were just getting pissed because we were just like, we probably didn't think it was ever going to go on, you know. And then after about three months, we kind of went, maybe we should put some records out. And then we started the label. And then it kind of went on maybe for about a year, didn't really do anything. And then we put the Mary Chain out and then it just exploded. Do you know what I mean? And then once you have one really big record, which we, we, we you know, that was a big record, an indie record that was in charts for about a year, um, in the indie chart, then everybody wants to sign you, Phil. And then that was, we were we were signing some good bands. And then the most of the 80s, it was like up and down, you know, we like, I could define it, 85, 86 was great, 87 was terrible, 88 was that great in bands, 89 wasn't that great, 90, it went bananas, we loaded and stuff like that, you know, but, you know, at that point, it was like that. Do you know what I mean? So, like, does that mean that, like, the success that you would get off? Because obviously, like, labels, you have what you get, you have to put back in and all the rest. Yeah. If you'd be really successful on, like, say, like the Mary Chain record, you, you yeah. use your profits to spend on X, Y, and Z band to come true, and then maybe that doesn't recoup, and then your label starts to go back down the shitter. But then, yeah. but because we were just like, you know, my background's obviously very similar to yours, it's work class background. There was no money. Nobody had handed me 10 grand to start a record label. We were running on empty for the day one. So, you know, it wasn't literally, I mean, I'll be honest with you, it wasn't until probably 92, 93, and we'd started in 83, that it became comfortable. Do you know what I mean? You know what I mean? It, was like, it took us years to, for it to be okay. Do you know what I mean? You know, it was, there was always, that's a bit that nobody remembered. Because we went up, we were on film and sold, absolutely zillions of Oasis records. I think it's the last, somebody told me it was 65 million at the last of the ones that I'd put out. 
and it's they're still selling. But um, people only remember that success. They don't remember the fact that we were nearly bankrupt three or four times. And <laughs> you know what I, mean? I think any any good independent record label should should have the war story of of. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean, I mean, it was just you know, it was crazy. I mean, they were like. I mean, how we survived, I don't actually know. I don't know if anybody knows how we survived, but we managed to come through. But we, we should have been dead, you know what I mean? Was there, was there somebody like... <coughs> there are levels of responsibility. The label I run is only a small little DIY one called uh, Hometown Records. Yeah. And you've got me, who's the happy slappy, uh, loves hanging out with the artist, picking the artists, like, you know, getting the camaraderie going. And then you've got Johnny, who runs it with me, who's like a safer pair of hands. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of, <laughs> but like, will definitely keep me grounded a bit. Like you, that you ran the label with um, two other people, yeah, didn't you? Dick and Joe, yeah, yeah. I mean, Dick was more like. I mean, you say Dick was the one that was. Uh, as, as the years progressed on into the early nineties, it was definitely Dick. It was like the most sensible one it always. But uh, in the beginning, Dick went off, and I'm not slagging him here. I'm just being honest and going. Dick got to about. 87, 88, and then he had kids, and literally, you know, for about three, four years, Dick just went and, you know, done the family thing. He'd do 95 sort of thing with us, and then, and so it, it sort of left me from that period about 88 to about 92, 93 to be really the one that was trying to, you know, balance a business as well, you know what I mean? So it was, it was pretty mad that we came through it, but we did, you know. So, but like you get stuck in with the bands, and the bands liked having a good time. I don't anymore, man. You know, I mean, no, I'm bad now, dude. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, but back in the back in the day, like when creation was starting out, I mean, I wouldn't assume that you'd be first to bed and you'd be closer last to bed than than any of the rest of them, right? Assuming I went used to go to bed. Do you know what I mean? You know, you know, like I mean, it was it was crazy for that time. I mean, it was also we were coming through. One of the best times ever for, you know, partying, which was Acid House, do you know what I mean? Mm. So, you know, and we, we all got caught up in that in quite a big way, you know, from about 88 to about 92, 93. Well, I mean, I got sober in 94, but yeah, I mean, six years we were partying pretty hard, you know? Yeah, like Acid House as a, as a genre lasted a bit longer than punk, really, didn't it? Because like punk was yeah. coming... Well, and it was it, about two years. I became techno at some point, you know. What I mean, but the actual last great acid house records, brilliant. Do you know what I mean? No, don't worry. That was just somebody sending me a, a text. Oh my <laughs> god, it's ping through my ears. Like, <laughs> fucking hell! I was like, was my fire alarm going off? <laughs> so, like, yeah. The, 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 where were we? The, the punk. Uh, yeah. So, sorry. What, pick pick up where you were there. I bet you talk about acid house. Yeah. Uh, so, like, acid acid house came around in in eighty eight, and it. Yeah. It, it changed the landscape for modern British music, but you kind of managed to weather that and, and also really benefit from it as well. It was an amazing time. We loved it. And also it really helped the bands, I think, with, the, with their understanding of music. Because the indie thing up to about 87, 88 was so tight. You know what I mean? It was so, you couldn't really, do you know what I mean? I mean, it was like, you couldn't really break out of it. And then Acid House happened and I was the first one of our crowd to get into it because I was spending a lot of time in Manchester and uh, I cottoned onto it and then I came back and I, I dragged Primals and the Valentines and the House of Love 
I took them all to Aston House clubs and to different degrees they all got into it. Do you know what I mean? I mean House of Love weren't really having it. But Primal's obviously utterly had it and, and and Valentine's loved it as well. And I was just taking my bands on my label, you know, to these clubs and everybody got everybody everybody loved it basically, you had to get into it. Let's take one letter out of that word you just said, degrees, right? Let's take yeah. the letter E out of it and <laughs> and, and, and see where, where, where that came into the equation with you saying that they, they really enjoyed it because it feels like the, from what I, like, I mean, from, I, I obviously wasn't there, but like from people who talk about that scene, they, they almost talk about how inextricably linked that, uh, that ecstasy and the music were. It was an amazing time. I don't regret that time you know it opened me up do you know what i mean because i think i'm like ultimately i'm a very um geeky square kind of person ultimately and uh and i like what i like you know and um but i mean I'll, i'm a, i'm very ocd you know i mean punk suited me it was like a collector's club in a lot of ways do you know what i mean you know but then acid house happened and you start taking ecstasy and you listen off you know what i mean so it was good for me spiritually it was good for me you know it felt like the, that, um, that that drug played a big part in Primal Scream, especially out of all the acts that, that you, you worked with. Big time. I mean, Gillespie wasn't having it at first, man. He was a... I would phone him up to Manchester going, this is, this is genius. And I, I remember there was one time, I was in this indie club, it was the end of 87, and I was in this indie club in Manchester. And uh, the Friday nights at the Hacienda were kicking off, right? And I was already friends with the Mondays. And, um, and, uh, and I said to my pal, James, let's go down to the Hacienda. We paid her 10 quid to get in or whatever. And, and uh, we got into the Hacienda and there was just, it was unbelievable, Phil. It was like 2,000 people each having the best party in their heads at the same time. Yeah. So I mean, the atmosphere is probably it's as good as, you know, your football team winning the cup final. Do you know what I mean? It's just, mm-hmm. it's amazing. It was just kicking off. And then I remember looking up. It's kind of one of the, it, it, that weekend sold Manchester to me and I moved up for six months after that weekend. I looked on stage and Sean Ryder was uh, on stage with a gold lammy shirt, leading the charge with 600 people. <laughs> and at that point, I was like, this is it. This is this is what I've been waiting for, and uh, we had a great time. And uh, you know, I I went back to London that weekend and phoned up Tony Wilson the next week and said, "Um, like, you know, I'm going to move up." And he went, "We've got a place above Factory. Alan Erasmus will rent you." And I rented a flat above Factory for eight quid a week. And- <laughs> that's crazy because I was I was thinking like I was trying to make a connection in my head there of like you know you were leading a motley crew of of people who were very important culturally to music at the time and in Manchester Tony Wilson was doing a very similar thing with with Factory yeah, yeah. and New Order and Joy Division yeah. and everybody that that he worked with like what was your relationship with like with him I mean I'd love to be in a fly in the wall the conversation we used to but like we had to run ins occasionally but. You know, later on down the line, about 10 years later, we had, had a few run-ins, me and Tony, but he was amazing. I mean, I'd, overall, I had such good times with him. And I remember him about eight, seven, when I was not having a good year, and I was like, I'm down, and blah, blah, blah. And he just went, look, it's really simple. Stop selling your fucking bands to major record companies. Because we'd, we'd, we'd sold Mary Chain on, and we'd sold House of Love on, and, and he went, just stop selling your fucking bands. Mm-hmm. 
the, what what is the benefit of that? Like, are, like when you is it plugging into the a, a bigger labels marketing system, which means that they'll yeah, get out to more really, people? It never really worked for us until until we were really big ourselves in the nineties. Mm. We did the deal with Sony, and then we had Primus through Sony for the rest of the world. We had Oasis through Sony for the rest of the world, and, and it it was then because we were already big. We we were. Do you know what I mean? We couldn't really be that messed about by them. But in the 80s, when we weren't big, we were, we were relying on them being reasonable people, and they weren't, you know what I mean? So uh, it just never really worked. Well, like, so they, yeah, because it, it does, it, it, it seems like two people from, from two completely different backgrounds, where you, if you're yeah. in it for the music and they're in it for the money, then it's, yeah. it's such a, like, yeah. it, on paper, it should never work. And often it doesn't, and often it does, right? It's actually even weirdly more niche than that because the main people at these big labels are actually usually quite, quite good. Most of the deals that we did in the 80s was a guy called Rob Dickens that done them. He's a good guy. I still know Rob to this day. But then when, when it filters down to the people that have actually got to manage the deal with me or, you know, the, you know deal with me and deal with my bands, they don't really like you. So that, you know, you know when you're talking to them, Phil, that you don't like me and you don't like my music and you don't like my bands. And, and so it's poison before you even start because you know they're, they're only doing it because they're getting paid to do it, not because they want to do it, you know? Yeah, I struggle a lot with that. I mean, like my, my record label, Hometown Records, spent two years as a joint venture with Sony, right. um, uh, like near the beginning because we had absolutely, they, they offered us and we had no idea what we were doing. And they saw, right. That, right. They saw that we were quite good at bringing new artists through. And I mean, we literally had no idea what we were doing in, in terms of like releasing records, but we were picking new artists out and finding the best new artists way faster than their whole A&R teams were. And we were putting out small bids for them, which yeah. meant that they had a matching rights policy, which meant they couldn't overbid us. So we were screwing them out of like accidentally, not on purpose, like, but they, were, they, they would have to come to us and tell us to, to take it away. So like, I, I kind of like, <laughs> I... I I don't know how I feel about my time with the, the majors, but it, it wasn't awful and it wasn't particularly great either. Like, I just come out of it a little bit like I prefer doing a DIY. There's a lot less money, but like, I, I, I think I prefer it this way. Yeah. I mean, my attitude towards the music, the, in the money and the music, and the, until you're really selling records, it's better not to take their money. Do you know what I mean? You know, it's like, you know, when we went to them in 92, we were kind of going bankrupt. We were, we were fucked, really. But, we had three really big bands, do you know what I mean? You know, and uh, when I say big, you know, we were you know, like top five bands, sort of thing. And uh, so, it, it, you know, it, it, we got money off of that. But then within a year, nine months later, I found Oasis, you know what I mean? And that was, you know, you know, it took Sony maybe three or four months to realise what had actually went and done, do you know what I mean? Because I told them about it. And I was in New York that summer, and it was the Americans. The Americans, generally speaking, the, the, the A&R people are much cleverer than the British ones. And I played it to uh, Dave Massey and Richard Herpey. I can't remember the guy's name. Big, big Richard, the, the, head of, uh, the head of one of the Sony labels. And they both went to me absolutely epic. They were both the head of epic, Big Richard. And... Uh, I played it to the, the, these two separate people, and they, both times wasn't even one of the great Oasis choruses. It was Columbia. It doesn't really have a chorus. Yeah, you know yeah, yeah. tune though. And, yeah, it's a great tune, and it got to the, it got to both of them. 
25 seconds in went, we're having this. <laughs> yeah. And, and Sony in England, who were humouring me at that point, about Oasis, really, to be honest, they were like, yeah, 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 you've got another band out. They just, I don't think they really, they probably didn't take me that seriously, really. They just thought, whatever. And then when the Americans were going, he's got one. Then they started, you know, then they ended up getting behind it and, and they set it up. But uh, it wasn't immediate, do you know what I mean? With with Oasis, what was the time scale between you signing them and and them blowing? Well, it depends what you say called blowing, but if you talk about between Supersonic going in the charts at 31, you'd have to say that was the beginning of the ascendancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, nine months. It took me nine that's months. Absolutely crazy. I don't like the only one that's as close to that would probably be the Arctic Monkeys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think with how fast it went, and it's probably even faster than Arctic Monkeys. Oh, it'd be even faster than Arctic Monkeys. Arctic Monkeys are great, but, but, um, I mean, Oasis was so much bigger than that. You know what I mean? You know, it was mad. What was yeah. like? I mean, it's it's one of the like the probably the like, as somebody who grew up reading NME and and reading pretty much any music book that I could. The 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 story of you signing Oasis is probably one of the most told because it's it's. <laughs> It's because it's so romantic. It, it, it's got it's got an absolute romance to to its story. I mean, I mean, occasionally people say that me and Noel are making it up, but it's it's so bananas. It's the truth. Do you know what I mean? Because I would walk in and if I liked the band, go, "Do you want a deal?" and keep my word and put the record out, and that's essentially what I did. I had no idea I was seeing Oasis that night, Phil. It just was. It was on. It was they were they'd been brought up by. A mutual friend, Debbie Turner. I didn't know she was bringing them, but she was bringing the band up to play. She played after them, Sister Lovers, and um, I saw them. And one of my other pals had had, had out his teenage fan club, Mark Coyle, was doing their sound. One of Noel's closest mates, but I didn't know Noel. And I went, "Who's the manager?" They didn't have a manager at that point. And Coyle went, uh, "You know, the leader of the band's Noel." And I went, "Go and get him." And about ten minutes later, Noel Gallagher came down the stairs, and that was. That's, that's when I met Noel, you know. And then we shook on it about 10, 15 minutes later. Um, I wandered off to an acid house club to get fucking mashed. And, uh, <laughs> and, they, and we shook on it. And then, and then I still, I, because I was pissed, and then I'd been out and taken a load of drugs that night, I woke up the next day or two days later, whenever it was like, you know, I came round sort of thing. And I was thinking, I wonder if they were as good as I thought they were. And but we got them down on the Thursday, and they were as people. They were amazing. It was like Noel, Liam, uh, Bonehead, and they were brilliant. And Noel was especially brilliant. And at that point, I was like, I mean, if I can do it. And Did you ever have any hesitation around them? At the beginning, no, they were great. You know, I mean, and, and and when I when I had the meeting with them as well, that was a, a brilliant first meeting. And uh, I just thought, this is going to work, you know, I think. Do you know what I mean, you know? Do you have to get the approval of an Irish mum to, to sign a band and, and, and get it over? Because, like, they didn't have a manager or a lawyer. But I'll tell you what, an Irish ma is better than a, a lawyer and a manager. Like Young, dude. I mean, I think Noel was 25. Liam was 19. So, they were, you know, they were old enough to sign. I mean, I've actually signed bands when they're still at school. Slow dive. Mm. Oh, they- yeah. Yeah, they, 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 when I signed Soul Dive when I was 16 and their mums uh, had to sign the record deal for them. Yeah, it was the same thing happened with, with me in that band Touts. Oh, right. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw, I saw I, it. 
I signed them when the lead singer was 15 and we like talked to their parents and all the rest of it. And it's just very, very, very exciting. And like sort of, you get a, you have a pastoral care. Like I, I, you know, I care for them. Like, like uh, they're my little brothers, you know what I mean? I'm sure you get that a lot with the artists you look after. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do, do, do you have people like that you've looked after over the years, like come to you still like a uh, sort of yeah. uncle, uncle Alan? Yeah, I mean, some of them you end up, I mean, most people that I've worked with, I'm cool with, you know what I mean? And, we, and uh, God knows what they actually think of me, but they all seem to <laughs> God knows. Some of them are still really tight with, you know what I mean? Some people are. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm pretty tight with no, actually. Do you know what I mean? I was going to say, what, what, what's your relationship like with both? both uh, uh, well, Liam was threatening to bar me recently, do you know what I mean? You know? <laughs> well, what happened there? But then about, I don't, I don't really know. I never spoke to him about it. But then a day later, he said he loved me, so. Fuck knows about that one, but, um, but no, yeah, I talked to know quite a lot. You know, what I mean, I've, like I sent him a Johnny Rotten film the other night. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, that the the, uh, the image is rotten. Or, do, you know that Johnny Rotten film? No, I haven't seen it. Yeah, no, yeah, I can't remember. It's a bit public image. It's brilliant. I sent him that. So okay, I got on alright with him. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, I just haven't seen Liam in years. Do you know? What I mean? Yeah, no, like I, I, I had Liam. I did an interview with Liam last year. He came into. Yeah. Sure. piano session and uh, yeah absolute legend um they're never going to get back together i mean it's one of the questions uh, as i said like one of the stories most told is you signing them but one of the questions most asked really is, is oh this is going to get back together i'm not even going to ask a question i'm just going to say they're not i can't there's too much animosity like i, I don't think no and but you never know it's brothers you just never know you know maybe one day they'll make up i hope they do you know what i mean <laughs> the, you'll probably be about 70 at that stage and Liam will not have lost I'm, it. I'm, 50, I'm, I'm nearly 60, dude. You know what I mean? I'm like six. I mean, I'm amazed I'm still doing music. I'm amazed I'm still interested to that extent of putting records. I've got Clockworks coming out June the 12th and then I've got this girl that I think is incredible, Cat SFX, and she's put the record out in July. I kind of freaked out I'm still interested enough to put records out, but there you go. Has that waned over the years? Like, Because, like, like, you know, if you... Look, look at a potted history like there's moments where you sort of dip out there's like you know there's there's a couple of years where you'll not do anything in music and then you'll come back to it what what keeps bringing you back well i i was i was pretty I'm, I'm from 82 80, from 80 i was putting out my own records from 80 to 2007 it was pretty solid and then I, 2008 i went down to bring my daughter up in wales i've got a 19 year old daughter and uh, I went down for five years to, to bring my daughter up. And then, like everything, she got to about 13, dude, and then went, I don't want you to take me to school anymore. So then I wrote the <laughs> yeah. book. And then I came back to London. Uh, when I, because, you know, you know like, uh, my daughter lives in Wales. And uh, I came back to London. And, uh, and then I just got people asked me to manage them. You know, there's a lot of different people. Mary Chain, Mondays, um, Wilco Johnson, Cast. They all they all phoned me up at different points and went, "Did you fancy, did you fancy getting involved?" You know. What I mean? Have you ever like uh, done? Because obviously, like you have to be some sort of a businessman to be able to put together what you put together. Have you ever sort of extended your portfolio and tried and tried stuff outside of music? Like you haven't like I've done pretty well. Rights to Mister Muscle or something like that. Have you? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I've got a load of property, Phil. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I didn't lose my Britpop money. If you know what I'm saying, you know what I mean? You know. Right. What a load of property, but I don't know how I don't know where the property is at this point because it's a bit like you know, I mean, post COVID, you know what I mean? I mean, everybody's taking such a bath, 
But yeah, I mean, I own quite a bit of property. I'm, I'm fine, you know. I do music not for the cash. I do music because I just love music, you know. I mean, I want to do it, you know. That's 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 the purest way of doing it. You got me thinking there of like, because like obviously Britpop, um, you go from Acid House, which are everybody's sort of like hugging each other and they're all part of it. And then you get into Britpop and it's almost like, it's like going from Obama to Trump. Do you know what I mean? It's the complete and utter opposite of what's just gone before. You've gone from a love drug to this, like to co- cocaine and champagne and, and these bands that are very arrogant and uh, outspoken. But Phil, I'm going to tell you something. The real truth is, it's like, I didn't really like it. I didn't really like Britpop. What I loved was punk. And then Acid House. That's the two things that I can go, that's who I am. That's what I loved. And I sort of, signed Oasis, and Oasis would tell you to this day they are not Britpop, but they got defined as Britpop, so we re- we we rode it right out of town, and so a lot of records on creation, 65 million records, but at no point were we getting off on, I mean, I'm talking about me, creation, well, at no point were we getting off on Britpop, it was just something that happened, and we sold the records, you know. Was there ever a moment around that sort of Britpop era that you were like, oh, they've jumped the shark now. This is too much. Like that record, like that's well, there's there's always a death. I, I have a big, I have a, a big fan oh. of like the the death record. There's always one record that kills a genre. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah, don't yeah. know. I don't know what the Britpop one is. That might have be been here now, but but uh, I I actually think with the Gallagher's, it was like they were so fucking mental that I just loved it. You know, what I mean, because I realised that. Is it the best thing since punk? These guys are really famous and they're just having it. And of course, <laughs> me being me, I just let it happen as much as when, when there was at different points which I could have maybe tried to dissuade them from the path they were. And I never did because I just thought, well, I said, well, because, because there's a, I suppose there's, a, there's the Celtic thing with me that I just go, fuck it, let's do it, you know? <laughs> and were you involved with Nabworth as well, with the, the, the I, massive I, I, mean, I mean, I wasn't the manager. I mean, they told me we're doing Nabworth, we're doing two nights, you know, and we did, you know what I mean? Liam's convinced that he can do Nabworth by himself. And I'm almost like, start, I'm starting to get more convinced as time goes by that he probably could. Oh, he can. I mean, it's only 125,000 people. His fan base is, I'd say he's almost as big He's almost as big as Oasis. He's, he's, he's massively at this point, you know. So, like, what what, what was like a uh, what's the sort of like music that you're really digging now? Like, because I, I you're you're flying the flag for something I'm quite passionate about is like great young guitar bands. They don't they don't get. Yeah. I mean, there's never there's never been a worse time to be a guitar band really than now. And people will tell you otherwise that like Idols and Shame and Fontaine's DC and add another band here are doing quite well. But they're the exception to the the rule, I think. I would, if you'd said what music from that genre do you like, I, 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 would, I mean, I love Idols. I know Joe quite well now. Yeah, great band. Yeah, brilliant guy. And, uh, you know, but yeah, I love these bands, you know. And, and you know, my, I mean, I love some of my little bands. I love Clockworks, do you know what I mean? I love Shambolic. So, you know, I'm just putting records out. I love Case as well, you know, I put a record out for them. Um, but... I'm just enjoying putting records out. I can't really believe that I've, that people let me still put records out. Phil, <laughs> do it, man! I'll do it. Is there is there like one band or one artist or like one or two that that got away from your your steely grips when you were trying to sign them and they went on to infamy? Yeah, there's a few. I mean, I mean, the, the, the first three bands you'll like us. Okay? First three bands that I tried to sign when I was 21 
going on 22. For the Pogues, uh, three <laughs> You're right. The Pogues prefab sprout and the Smiths. And I tried what? to get away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the, that was the first three bands. I, I met the Pogues. I went to the second Pogues gig. We hadn't even put a record out at this point. We, I just had this idea creation. And, uh, and I ended up the next night in Shane's flat. And they were all getting up to all sorts of things. And, uh, and I just think they thought, even though he's only a couple of years older than me, I just think he thought, this kid's too innocent. Because I was a wee geeky ginger kid, you know what I mean? I think he just thought, <laughs> go home to your mum. And then uh, I never got them. I wrote to, I heard lines in Mon Garden with Prefab Sprout on John Peel. Wrote to them, said, I'm starting creation. I want to sign you. Never got them. And then, uh, and then I heard a demo from Rough Trade hand in glove and I did I spoke to Johnny a bit at the time and, and I, I was supposed to put out a flesh the Smiths yeah and I tried to get Smiths at one point so I never really I, I think it got to that that was the first three that you would have to say that I must have commercial taste because that's quite commercial bands and I, I, I sort of decided stick to people playing your club just put mm. the record out and that's what I did I signed up Mary Chain Primals Jasmine Minks Loft Felt Pastels. I put aside all these bands. You know. I mean, when you say you've got commercial taste, you you have as left yeah. as you yeah. can possibly go. That's still in the mainstream, like because yeah. w- like the Smiths back at that time. I don't think they had a manager. I don't think they they really they maybe had a, a manager here and there, but it was mainly done with by Johnny Marr and sometimes yeah. Morrissey. Like Johnny at that point, you know. And uh, I don't see Johnny anymore. Really. I mean, I just, you know, occasionally run into him in a hotel lobby, you know. But I love him, and, uh, and you know, and he was going to give me uh, a flexi disc. I don't know what I, I think it was. We never ended up putting it out, but he was going, one of our first releases. He was going to let me put a, a Smiths flexi disc. <laughs> wow, that's a, that's amazing. Should like, should have done it. Two, two, two of my favorite bands right there, yeah. uh, and, and I never knew. Um, Alan, thank you so much for taking the time to to yeah, chat to me. Um, it's great. Like I'm, I'm loving this because I've got nothing but free time at the minute. So, so getting, just getting to spend an hour with yourself chatting about this is great. I mean, I've got, I've got a wee radio show on, on the Boogaloo, but I haven't. I'm lazier than you, Phil. I haven't a uh, plugged the mic in yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got the microphone. <laughs> what's your, what's your, what's your radio patter like? I just. Talk, it just it's just like stream of consciousness. Do you know what I mean? I get my pals on, it's pretty interesting because I can get good people, you know what I mean? But that's just get people on. This, I suddenly think, oh, he'd be quite good this week. Let's get him in, you know. So, where can people listen to this then? Well, it's on Mixed Cloud, Boogaloo, Alan McGee, Boogaloo Radio, and uh, there's all these, there's about seven shows up, you know what I mean? You know, I just they want me to get the, get the microphone out and do, do it for home, but I haven't done it yet, you know. <laughs> Well, listen, you've got you've got you've got the skills to do it. You need to get that open. Um listen man, take take care. Um and uh I, I look forward to seeing what you what you got coming out next. I know it's the clockworks actually. We should use this point to talk about the clockworks just briefly because they're very, very good. And they're the next album you've got coming out. And I know yeah, 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 yeah. I just been at the moment, yeah. I met the boys just before you started working with them as well yeah. and they were, and then met them after and they were delighted. There's a, they, they, if they, that band don't make it, Sean and the band will end up being a big manager. He's one of these guys who's just got it, you know what I mean? Well, you, you know who to, to, to bring into creation next then. <laughs> uh, Alan, cheers, man. Thank you very much. All right, mate. Bye. See you in a bit. Bye.
Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.